0: Welcome to the Embedded Church Podcast, where we share stories about reweaving the connections between place, the built environment, and the mission of God.
1: Season four of the Embedded Church Podcast is produced in partnership with the Ormond Center at Duke Divinity School. The mission of Ormond Center is to foster the imagination, will, and ability of congregations and communities to be agents of thriving.
0: I'm Eric Jacobson.
1: And I'm Sarah Joy propet and we'll be your hosts on today's episode of the Embedded Church Podcast.
0: Hey, Sarah Joy. What if I were to tell you that shalom is actually a dirty word?
1: Eric, that's insane. How is shalom a dirty word? Because I've heard it thrown around in so many different contexts. It means so many different things. But please tell me, how is it a dirty word? All right.
0: All right. all right. We can get back to shalom in just a moment. But bear with me for a second. I've been reading a little bit of Wendell Berry. And if you don't know who he
1: is, how can I not know who Wendell Berry is? Eric? I don't know. A lot of people he's don't like know. He's like one Wendell of Barry. my favorite authors in the whole world. And that's I've always cool. said like that if, too. I, if I could marry Wendell Berry, I would.
0: That might a, be a little
1: weird. That's a little
0: weird. I can, I'm agreeing with you there. I think he's
1: pretty old and married. You know, we could look into some grandsons.
0: <laughs> Does Wendell Berry have any grandchildren and are they singles? <laughs> Anyway, let me pull this back to my initial point. But Wendell Berry is a Kentucky farmer who does a lot of writing about community and the health of communities and draws a lot of parallels between the health of the soil and health of communities. Hence, Shalom, which is kind of about well-being and flourishing and all that kind of stuff, seems to me to be somewhat analogous to the health of soil. So Shalom is, my contention, a dirty word.
1: I like it. A little bit of a stretch, but
0: I like it. <laughs> all right. All right. And then, Barry, in addition to just talking about soil, gets into a little bit of the details of how soil is made in some conditions. It's not just a sort of pre, pre-existing condition, but it's made.
1: You mean you can't go buy it at the store, at Home Depot, the topsoil?
0: Well, you can go buy it. But what Barry's really into is how it's sort of made naturally. And he uses the analogy of a bucket that collects materials from the environment and then over time converts it into soil. And he uses that as this analogy of sort of the human task of reducing local culture. And I, I see so many connections between how the church can be contributing to and participating in the health of uh, the local community by thinking of themselves like a bucket. So what do you think about this season, us using this bucket analogy as a way of getting into some of our discussions about the embedded church this year? Are you game?
1: Totes. Do you like my bucket pun? Tote. tote bucket?
0: A bucket is it kind, kind of, of the tote. same thing. Yes. <laughs> I love it.
1: Let's do it. Let's get our hands dirty. I don't know if I love it as
0: much as picturing you, uh, <laughs> you know, getting married to Wendell Berry, but I like it. Yes.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, I like it. And first I'd say we have to discuss what do we even mean by Shalom? So, Eric, we decided to center season four around the Bible verse in Jeremiah 29, verse seven, to be exact, which states, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In some translations, the word welfare actually shows up as shalom. So this can be translated a couple of ways, obviously, and shalom often gets translated as peace in the Bible. So I would be curious to hear from you as a pastor who obviously knows Hebrew and Greek better than I do. Is that a good translation when we use it as peace? And should we only be seeking the peace of our cities then? Talk to us more about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a fine translation, but as as in a lot of translations, it's it's not adequate. It It probably warrants some explanation because i think we think of peace in a couple of ways that are somewhat inadequate one of the more common ways we think of peace is just simply absence of warfare when when there's not violence going on then we there we have peace and that's not entirely true you know you think about a parent driving in the car with two kids in the back seat that are like totally beating up on each other and you as the parent you turn around and you say everyone quiet down or i'm stopping this car and they stop fighting but there's no peace. They're just sort of like, there's a settled truce. They're seething inside. There's a settled (laughs) truce. And so I would say in the same way, shalom is peace in the sense that, yeah, absence of conflict is one of the conditions, but it's not sufficient to explain the whole thing. We also want to have the flourishing of uh, relationships of all kinds, relationships, human relationships, our relationship with creation, our relationship to ourselves. And then most importantly, our relationship, with God, so one of the ways we can think about peace is these uh, these healthy and thriving relationships that are all fundamental to who we are.
1: Yeah, and as you were talking about, kind of that difference between peace being not just the absence of conflict, but something more, something flourishing. It also makes me think of kind of that difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, mm. right? Because if you're actively seeking to make peace, you have to be bringing things into their flourishing, so that things are operating in correct. Synergy with one another, whether it be a relationship with another person or with God or with your community, like you were saying. So
0: absolutely. Yeah, that's so really it's more important. of a proactive term. And, right. Know, that's a really good distinction.
1: So then, too, in terms of expanding this understanding of peace to really be. Larger than ourselves. We often also talk about peace though, in terms of personal contentment of just, oh, I'm so at peace with my place in the world or whatever people say these days as we pursue mindfulness. Yeah. How does shalom play into that? Is that a yeah. component of it? That's, or that's, that's
0: a really great question and super important distinction to make because again, it's part of it, but not enough. Like when we're experiencing shalom in the world, we, hopefully we'll have a sense of personal contentment, a sense of personal peace. But we need to be really careful not to read in sort of our American individualism into that concept that it's only about when I'm personally content. The Bible describes us as relational communal beings, not sort of as isolated individuals. And so it's really important that we Add to personal contentment, this notion of Shalom as a community goal. We want our communities as a whole to feel peace. It's really easy for Americans to think about Shalom peace as, you know, getting your living room set up just the way you like it and getting your backyard just the way your family likes it. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but it's much larger than that. You want peace for the whole community, for Shalom to really be existent.
1: Yeah. And I'm thinking too, when... The mindset is pursuing that personal peace as you set up your backyard. That actually can really lead to a lot of isolation because if you're not seeking the peace beyond your own walls, then I think there's a lot of um, desire to retreat to your own walls because that's where you find peace, right? Because if you're not actively pursuing peace in the larger community, then once you step outside, you're faced with the brokenness and, um, absolutely the dissolution that might be happening. Right. So,
0: yeah. In addition to focusing on Jeremiah 29, one of our goals for this season though, is to help pastors ask better questions. And so right away, I think we can start working on that goal, even as we get into this discussion. So one of the ways to play that out is for a church to think about Shalom, it's really easy to think internally like, Oh, are, are our people happy? Am I Mm -hmm. happy? As a pastor, am I feeling comfortable with what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera? And that's not the best question we can be asking. the The better question is is how is the community doing? How is the shalom in our neighborhood? And are we as a church contributing to it? Are we indifferent to it, uh, having sort of a neutral impact on it, or are we reducing the shalom? And so, asking a better question is getting outside of the walls of our building and thinking about shalom in the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I think you're so right. So,
0: speaking of that, that kind of got me thinking about a lot of what we do in, in the Embedded Church podcast is talk about the built environment. That's one of the lenses that that we enjoy. What is the built environment and how does Shalom uh, relate to it?
1: So the built environment, that's just simply a fancy word for the places where we live. I mean, it's where we have our lived experiences. So the places and the spaces that shape us. And this really takes a form of networks of buildings, streets, parks, things that make up our neighborhood, gardens. So it's not necessarily all man-made. It's also, the spaces in between these buildings, which I know Eric really likes.
0: Oh, so I was going to ask that. Yeah, I love the word space between. So it's not, it's not just about uh, architecture, like the individual building, how how pretty it is or what style it is. It's it's this space between.
1: Exactly the networks of places that have been developed, and then how that affects the ways that we. Run into each other, communicate, live our lives together. It also really affects, you know, the quality of life because it has so much to do with the access to things like affordable housing or healthy foods or different lifestyles that can be lived dependent on the type of environment that's been created. And so it's really important to understand because these are all things that contribute to our flourishing, right? So there's been a lot of research, particularly in sociological circles lately. That show that zip code and the way your neighborhood is designed actually has a lot to do with your health and your life expectancy. And it's really fascinating that something like 20% of your health is related to like access to like healthcare and those types of things. And the other 80% is what is called the social determinants, which largely are about kind of the environment that you live in and the Mm. social ties that you can form in the places that you live. And so it's pretty fascinating that all of this stuff is super related to what I would say the welfare of our community, um, the shalom, like you've been talking about.
0: So I've got a little uh, example of okay. what you're talking about, because I, th- I think it's pertinent. So our church here in Tacoma, First Presbyterian Church, we've got a, two buildings with a playground in between them that take up like, it's one block technically, but it's the size of like three blocks. So on one side, there's a lot of housing. There's a large apartment building. And the other side of us is this lovely urban park that people like to get to. And we've got a school in our church with a bunch of kids and they play in the playground. During recess, we close the gates to our playground to keep the kids safe. But when those gates are closed, neighbors can't walk through the playground for easy access from So the space between the buildings, right? So in some ways, we're inconveniencing our neighbors when the kids are in playing because they have to go all the way around the block yeah. you know, to get to the this lovely park. But when the kids aren't in recess, it's been really important to me to instruct the teachers to always open those gates again right? so that the space between the buildings increases the shalom in a very small way, but makes it convenient exactly. for our neighbors to get from there where they live to this park they want to get to. And that's just yeah. a very small example, but thinking about the experience of our neighbors. I guess I'm trying to ask better questions myself as a pastor. Yeah, so how yeah. do I help the shalom in whatever small way uh, in the neighborhood? So let's talk about shalom is about thriving, about things getting better. To me, that sounds like investment. You know, the more money, the more resources we pour into a neighborhood, the better things are going to get. Would you make that as sort of an equivalent? Is that going to automatically increase the shalom?
1: Yes and no. Ooh, it's a like tricky question there, Eric.
0: Yes, I like tricky <laughs> uh, questions.
1: Definitely the quality of these social determinants is largely affected by investment in the local community, right? So as you have dollars coming in and economic development happening in a particular neighborhood, that usually provides for you know better infrastructure, better street trees, better gathering places, At the same time, I think that it's really important to realize that a lot of these places where that type of thing tends to happen can cause displacement of local residents. And then, you know,
0: that's gentrification,
1: right? That leads us into gentrification. And so I think one of the things is that's really wise, particularly as Christians, is to think about as we bring investment about in a neighborhood, how do we do it in a way that's like healthy and Uh, values the local soil or the local good that is there and really seeks to augment that and to empower the people that are there that are active in these spaces to, um, to really utilize the gifts that they have. And so I think that, again, that takes really knowing the context and digging into that dig do you like that digging into that local soil a bit more
0: (laughs) i love it yes yes soil keeps coming up yes
1: Um, and it makes me think about like jane jacobs and her book the death and life of great american cities where she talks about unslumming of a community really comes from within and it really includes amplifying and empowering the change makers that are present Mm -hmm. and i think that so oftentimes the way real estate development is done these days is kind of more of a fire hose rather than a slow drip type of approach. Right. And so you get these big investors coming in with lots of money and kind of just steamrollering or firehosing everything down, right? Um and changing a place very quickly rather than that slow drip of bringing investment into a community, working with the community that's there to really grow the the resources and the capacity of the people who are actively doing really good work. But that takes that takes a long view, that takes time and um, a lot of grit in some ways that yeah. a lot of people don't want to do. And so I think the church is well positioned to be in that space in a very unique way.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. You know, this the slower pace drip by drip rather than fire hose and working with what's there and the residents there is is important on so many levels. I mean, one of the reasons it would seem is that then you don't have development that doesn't fit. With the needs of the local population, right? You might have certain kinds of businesses that really meet the needs of the local residents, but you know, an outside investor not knowing all those things might put in something that is going to attract a wealthier clientele, or they're after something different, but it, it's not what's needed for that particular population.
1: Right. I read an article once that was really great. That there was a church that said, you know, maybe your neighborhood doesn't need another coffee shop. Maybe it needs a laundromat.
0: It's possible for a developer to kind of miss that and. Put stuff in the neighborhood that's not super helpful uh, for that particular neighborhood. To me, it's mm-hmm. a going back to our soil analogy it would be, you know, digging up all the soil and taking it somewhere else, and then bringing in new soil from like Home right. Depot, uh, as opposed to just enriching the soil that's there. Can you see that? I feel like I have dirt under my fingernails just from talking about soil. Um, <laughs> I don't. I didn't actually I think do gardening that's just because
1: you failed to shower yesterday or something. <laughs> could, I don't know. Could be.
0: Could be. <laughs> All right, so I got one more question about Shalom because I do love this idea, and t- you know what's coming to mind so far, and what we've talked about is kind of a snapshot of a of a vibrant, sort of delightful kind of neighborhood and community. But I guess I want to get into the like what the dynamic view as these things progress over time. So much of my experiences, things that look nice when they're new, just kind of fall apart over time. They don't wear well, and so I've, I've, I find myself asking more and more, what kinds of things wear well over time?
1: I think that's part of talking about this investment in the local community. If you're working with the community and the stresses and of the environment that are there, but then adapting um, to really bring out what is good and how you amplify that within that local community is really important. How do we find ways to adapt within our local community? How do we create diversity of resources and value the diversity of resources that are present um, uh, how do we amend the soil that's there, not necessarily replace the soil, um, but create stronger soil, right? Um, by using what is there and what is present. Um
0: yeah, I love it. So my, the example I was gonna use was the kind of the ugliest part of Tacoma from my perspective is the transportation hub for the buses and it's a big parking garage and it's a bunch of other stuff. And it's kind of a massive, like government built project from the 70s that just didn't wear well. I'm sure it looked really nice when it was first built, but now it looks really like an eyesore. Whereas when you see investment coming in, the more more the way you were describing, sort of incrementally and slowly, that's responding to local conditions and lots of different players involved with how... That that seems like that kind of investment wears much, much better over time.
1: Definitely. And I think during the pandemic, one of the things we've seen really is kind of The adaptability of particular buildings and businesses has been so important on the smaller scale because that's what actually gives people the ability to adapt rather than trying to steer a ginormous ship in the middle of a pandemic. You know, it's the small boats that have been able to kind of reorient and shift that have
0: been more successful. That's awesome. Except you've really moved us away from the garden and the soil. Now we're in the ocean. I feel like our metaphors are getting a little bit overwhelming. So maybe we should, we should stop. stop talking about this stuff. We should bring in one of our partners from the Ormond Center and see if they've got some insight into Shalom that can help our listeners make sense of this super important concept.
1: Welcome, Josh Yates, to the Embedded Church podcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So if our listeners tuned into the trailer, they probably got a little introduction of who you are. But if they're tuning in for the first time, they might not have a frame of reference. So Josh Yates comes to us from the Orman Center, which is based out of Duke Divinity School. And I'd love for you, Josh, just to share a little bit more with our listeners about who you are and what you're doing there at the Orman Center.
2: Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. So I suppose there's probably three important things to know about me. The first is I'm an accidental academic. So for the last uh, 15 years, I have been on the faculty of the University of Virginia as a cultural sociologist, and then more recently, Duke. The second is that I'm an accidental social entrepreneur. So in that time, I've also found myself running a startup social enterprise called Thriving Cities Group, uh, which has done work with communities. Around the country, in about 20 different communities at this point, but the one thing that's not accidental is I'm originally from Montana, so I'm a very yes. proud, yes, very proud <laughs> Montanan. Um, oh,
1: now I have two Montanans with me.
2: Well, that's uh, yes, you're in trouble. You
0: are in trouble. <laughs> I I wish I was in Montana, but but half of the Jacobson clan was born in Montana, so we that's that's our strongest it, represented state in our household. So.
1: I don't know. Fantastic I think
0: a Texan proud. could take on two Montanans, probably. Uh, oh. <laughs> Texas is the Montana of the South.
2: I'll grant that.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: uh,
2: I should also mention I'm a father uh, and husband. Um, uh, and
0: that's also, of course, crucial to who I am. Absolutely. So Josh, Sarah Joy and I were just having a really interesting conversation about Shalom. I know you've done a lot of thinking about Shalom. So maybe we could kick it off with you just talking a little bit about why you think a, a deeper understanding of Shalom can be helpful to the local church.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Since I've just narrated who I am and some of the things that I do for a living or have done for a living, it's important to note that each of those have, have actually been pretty important to a quest that I've been on. At least that's what how I've come to think about it. And the quest has been focused on a question that at first, uh, or for a long time, I didn't really think of in terms of the word Shalom. But in more recent times, times, I've come to think that's exactly what it's about. And the question is this, what does it mean? And what does it take to thrive today in our communities? And related questions like who gets to and who doesn't, right? And so for a long time, in doing the scholarly work, the research, as well as doing the work on the ground with communities who are in the trenches trying to help their, their neighbors thrive. And more recently, in the work at the Orman Center, where In fact, part of our mission is to help equip congregations and their communities to be agents of thriving. This question has been front and center for me, and I would say about uh, five years ago or so, I had an an epiphany along this quest, and and the recognition was that the more I studied and learned about how the scriptures think about questions of human thriving, flourishing, more and more I came to a recognition that there is a rich Heritage, a rich language for this in the scriptures. Mm. And that language has a number of related terms, but at the core, at the center, it is the concept of shalom that mm. grounds a biblical view of
0: what it means and takes to thrive. I, I realize one of the goals we have for this season is to help pastors ask better questions. And just as you were speaking, that notion came to my mind. I thought, okay based on what you just said or what, you know, what what, what do you wish pastors would ask uh, that connects to thriving or shalom? Yeah, that's a great
2: question. Here's what I'd say. I think there's certain things we have to unlearn and there's certain things we have to relearn. Okay. And then there's probably things we have to keep learning. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It. So so here's what I mean by that. The, the thing we have to unlearn, I think, is that for most of us, this work, to the extent to which we even think about the word shalom or use it, right? It tends to be a word that we've interpreted pretty narrowly, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I think often it's interpreted in the scriptures as peace in English, which certainly gets at it. Or it's primarily a kind of individual level spiritual thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think we have to unlearn that. It's not that that is wrong. It's just incomplete. Yeah. Right. And so I think but that sort of stands in the way of a fuller, Appreciation, a deeper or richer understanding of what this word means and what it can mean for us today. And that's where we then move to what we have to relearn. And I would say that while it is a straightforward concept, it is not a simple concept. It is a multi layered, multi dimensional concept, which is why it's hard for our brains, I think, to kind of get a grip on it. But in fact, I kind of think of it as a super connector word, right? It, there's a cluster of things. That get connected, um, that come together, that get unified by the word shalom.
1: The hub on the tire.
2: It's a hub. It's a hub on the tire with lots of spokes. Right. Right? right. That's and a we great. Already image. Have, well, we already
1: have one metaphor go in the bucket, but okay, we can, think,
0: we can have one the, more. But that's, tire. Tire. that's it. That's it. We're <laughs> the bucket
2: in the in the hub. Uh, yeah. The no, hub. it's All fantastic. Right. Yeah. yeah. But that's how. That's a super joy. That's help. It's super helpful because I think that's right. And um, and in fact, one of the things that that relearning of being able to use that word to then see all the spokes that come off of it, right? right? Mm-hmm. And bring a coherence and unity to those things. that otherwise, I think we tend to pit against one another or we tend to focus on one at the expense of others when really we need to understand how they all fit together. But I think that part of what we have to relearn is this is a unifying integrating concept.
1: So I have a question going back to the unlearning that you said needs to be done. Are there ways that you have challenged yourself to unlearn?
2: Well, yes. And that that's a never-ending process. right? It turns so I'm out. wondering
1: what are the steps yeah. people can take to kind of unlearn or work back from that? I
2: think I had to unlearn. I've tended in my life to pit. Uh, to certain binaries, mm-hmm. certain sort of, you know, to use a more academic jargon, kind of dualistic thinking, but not even because I was, because uh, I had thought through issues, it's just by default. So think of words or, or binaries like sacred, secular, or faith and versus works, or evangelism versus biblical justice, right? In so many ways, these are words that our society wants to sort of pit against each other. And we just fall into these grooves. But as we dig into the word Shalom, what you realize is these each have a place. These yeah. things are more of a fabric. These kind of really stark divides are kind of in a bit embedded in our mindsets. They're hard to unlearn. And I've had to work really hard at that. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think that raises a question too of understanding, are there hierarchies within these things or no? And then how do you bring them all together in kind of coherent membership together like you've been talking about? And that's a struggle. That's a really hard thing to figure out.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think when we start thinking about things that fit together in holistic ways, you you do have to ask this question: What's the ordering principle? Right, right. And I do think ultimately we have some clues to that in scriptures. How do you see something against the whole narrative of Scripture? And of course, at the heart of that is Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so I think that we have some clues. We have some things we can begin to sort of that give us a hint or a lens to look at how those things ought to fit together. But I think, you know, as we do that, just the retraining the mind to not see these things as opposites, Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is a really important need at this moment.
0: It's awesome. So... I've got a question for you, Josh. So I'm thinking about the last, you know, couple of years. If I had like a Shalomometer, you know, so our listeners can't see it, but I'm doing a thing with my hand, you know, kind of the fake applause meter that youth leaders do. It's like on a wheel or a, a tire, exactly. It's like okay, thank you. Back to that metaphor. Uh, we have competing metaphors today, but uh, if I had a Shalomometer, it, it would definitely be going. It would. I would look back over the last couple of years. Is it going down? It feels like our our country's in crisis. There's a lot of. Uh, angst about all sorts of things from racism to politics to the isolation due to COVID. I mean, just like it's been a tough, tough climate. So what does that mean for us as we're talking about Shalom? Do we just kind of lament the fact that Shalom's on the downward spiral and waiting for it to pop back up? Or are there opportunities there that you think the church could kind of play into?
2: Yeah, I would say that one of the things that Shalom, digging into this concept of Shalom has taught me is the importance of context. Okay this gets to Sarah Joy your question too you know I would say we'll get to this probably at some point I don't think there's a formula for Shalom it has to be worked out in your context I think wisdom and discernment are at the core of it and that's only done in context and well I'm sure we'll get to all kinds of questions about what we mean by context but at a society level and this is true all the way down to our community we know this in our communities right our communities are going through massive disruptions and dislocations um, in so many different ways pretty mm-hmm. much every any way you can think about it yes yeah. you know we have compounding crises we're not just experiencing a number of parallel crises or something right they they actually all feed off of each other in complicated ways right you know I was thinking about as you were asking me that question take the question the issue of trust in our society yeah. right you know you look at Trust in our institutions right now. They're at an all time low. Almost any institution you can think of, right? From the press to Congress to small businesses, right? There's only a few that have even above a 50% approval rating or you know, try high, you know, higher than 50% level of trust. Everything else is b- way below that. And it turns out that we've been on like a 40 or 50 year slide. This isn't like a momentary blip on the, on the screen because of COVID or something. There's lots of things to worry about, for sure. Being a cultural sociologist, we can tend to be uh, a bit um, on the gloomy side when you start looking at all the, the <laughs> fractures in our society. But I actually think I am hopeful because I think that there are three things, three cultural shifts, you might call them, that I see playing out right now that I actually think give me hope for society more broadly, especially if the church can see these as opportunities uh, for its own engagement. And I actually think they're perfectly suited for the church's engagement. Okay. I love
1: Let's it. Let's hear
0: them. Yes. There you you, you want to hear them? them? Seats. I no, I, yeah, I
2: have your attention now. Yes. All right. Uh, there are three that I see okay. um, that are especially, uh, for. I think for the purposes of this podcast anyway, worth calling out. I'll call the first one the turn to wholeness, the second one the turn to well-being, and the third
0: one the turn to the local. Mm. I was hoping they would all start with W, but I'll two is fine.
1: Eric is so, a good pastor, and he likes alliteration.
0: <laughs> yeah, you got to get that, those <laughs> three <laughs> right. I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah. Anyway, no. Let's 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 hear about these. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, starting with the well-being, tell us more about that. What does that include? Yeah,
2: think about it this way a lots of people are feeling the disconnection from meaning and purpose right in their work in their families and so there's been a kind of counter push almost relentless obsession with things like happiness right with with uh self fulfillment self fulfillment right there's really shallow and and bad versions of this and we can point to those things but there's also i think quite legitimate impulses here all right there's a, there's a plenty of of the self-centered stuff but i think if we dig a little deeper scratch that a little more <laughs> what you'll find is that, that people know in their bones they were actually created to flourish
1: yeah they were made for more they were made for
2: more mm-hmm. they were made for relationship meaningful relationships they were made to grow into the kinds of human beings and creatures that are capable of contributing to the world around them, to the love of their neighbor in all kinds of different ways. And so I think there's a deeper hunger, even if it gets misdirected in all kinds of ways that we might want to criticize. And I think that's something Christians not only should uh, can affirm, but should affirm. Right. Right? I think we both are history at our best anyway. We've been the people who say, no, we're made in the image of God. Yeah. We're we're the kind of creature that has capabilities, that has uh, loves and desires. And our work matters. And our work in craftsmanship and right. creativity and innovation, these all matter. They're not incidental or you know, beside the point. They matter, for sure. I love the uh the way that the Yale theologian Miroslav Wolf puts it. He talks about it in his book called For the Life of the World. He says that the Christian story in its entirety is about flourishing life, good life, true life, or in biblical terms, abundant life, right? And what else is the gospel, but the good news that Jesus came to bring life in that more abundantly. So I think Christians have something to say here to actually point to the deeper yearning and hunger
0: beneath it.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: I love it. Beautiful. That'll preach let's talk about wholeness then second second turn
2: yeah if you think about the well-being as really a kind of d- deep desire for fullness for abundant life this is really i think a turn that people see of trying to bring things that have been divided broken separated back together i mean obviously there's lots of things that are broken fractured divided in our country and if you know the the election season And things that have followed haven't made that abundantly clear. I don't know what will, but I actually think we, it's, it's actually even worth getting away from the political ways we think about fracture and even get to a particular mindset that has been powerful in our culture and society for about 150, 200 years. This is like, you know, civics 101, but you know, think back to when you first learned about Henry Ford and the assembly line.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right. What was the assembly line? Why was it so powerful? Right, this industrial right process. It's because they took a complex reality, they broke it down into its constituent parts, isolated the different pieces, and then created efficiencies, right? Optimizing those efficiencies, yeah. Mechanization, right? Whenever we've faced a complex issue.
0: Plus Henry Ford was building cars, which helped to separate us in a whole different way.
2: But yes. <laughs> that's a different subject. You had to bring that in. I had well, to bring that also, in. I had to. I yeah. was setting you up. Yeah. yeah. I was you.
1: also going to say Jane Jacobs too, though, in her critique of urban planning and the built environment is that same critique of the separation of parts and mechanization and scientific approach to yeah. how we design yeah. our De- cities.
0: Designing the city like a machine, you know, and not, not right. like an organic. yeah, uh, so
2: 100%. A city isn't a machine. Yeah. It's an ecology. Yeah. So here's what I would say, and I'll bring in, I'll come back to Jane Jacobs because I think she's a perfect example of this, which is to say that what people know is that it's not that that process of breaking things down and separating them in and of itself is is wrong or bad or whatever. It really matters on what you're trying to apply that to. Yeah. If you're trying to do that in what are, in fact, machines, okay, that, that has its place, its role. But when you're doing that, to living systems or yep. just human culture, right. yep. then you're doing harm because you can't divide living systems in that way or try to control them. And when you try to do that, you actually often create way more harm than good. Yeah. Jane Jacobs recognized this. And you will both know in the last chapter of her great book. The kind of problem a city is. The ca- kind of problem a <laughs> city is, right? It's one of complexity.
0: Yeah. Right. Organized complexity. Organized complexity.
2: And I think that she was onto something that people in in ecology or in other forms of thinking have learned the hard way, which is that those kinds of things like a human community, like a family, you can't just break it down into its constituent parts and try to reassemble it. It doesn't work that way. And you oftentimes will kill it when you try to do that. Yeah. And so I think that that's an important part.
0: Yeah. I love it.
2: I might just say one more thing before we get to the turn to the local, because I think this might be a bridge to that. Yeah. And I think it's really important. I, I think with this respect to what a shalom vision or angle of vision, we might call it, allows us to understand the way, all the ways. And it doesn't take that much reflection to see how your particular community, your town is full of various kinds of division fracture, separation, isolation. The way we're sorted in terms of where we live and who lives where, the differences, I'm sure you've talked about it on the show, the differences of longevity between blocks from one place to another, right? Which has led people to realize that your zip code can be as impactful on your life chances as your genetic code. Right. Yep. So I think that I just want to commend that while we're talking kind of abstractly about the turn to wholeness or the turn to well-being, when Shalom starts training your vision, it starts helping you see things that you might not have seen otherwise, yes. which right. I think is really important.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: Based on that, then, as you start to see those things, I think what's required for that is to be really invested locally, right? And that was your third point. So I'd love for you to share more about that. So
2: when I started off my scholarly career, I actually started it as a scholar of globalization. It was in the late 90s. That was all the the buzz of how our world was becoming interconnected economically, technologically. And so I became fascinated by what that would mean for the world to be so interconnected. But one of the things I never expected, this was the counterintuitive part, was that at the same time you get global interconnection and the ability to do things on a global scale, it actually re-energizes the local. Hmm. How so? So what ends up becoming is that in many ways, in the challenges and the issues either require a global response, where the things are so big that the nation states now have to work together to solve massive, big, interconnected challenges, or the nation states often become too big for the very local kinds of issues. And so you need more local responses. And so you think about this phrase, think globally, act locally, as an example, that that's a cliche, it's sort of, you know, people have heard that, Maybe you're, bumper sticker. it's a bumper sticker. Maybe you're skeptical about it. But in fact, what we see is that at the same time and same period that we become more globally interconnected, we see a renaissance on the ground of local activity, of people having agency at the level closest to them, which is their communities, their cities, their towns. There's a great book, if your listeners are interested, called The New Localism which maybe you've talked about uh, as well. But the basic argument follows this point, which is that what we see now is a devolution of power um, from the national level to municipalities, states, municipalities, local regions. And not just the devolution down to like your mayor's office, but also the reality that the challenges we face at a local level require more than just the mayor or the chamber of commerce. It requires a whole diverse range or cross sector responses or efforts. So this is uh, this becomes a, a moment where nonprofits, private public partnerships, universities, churches all have, I think an increased ability to contribute and to be transformative in their local communities.
1: I think that speaks so well into the theme verse for the season of Jeremiah 29 and the call to seek the welfare of the city of the place where you live.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there's the word who I think is best translated, not peace or even welfare, but shalom. Yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. a great, you know, biblical moment where that word I think now has resonance for us to seek the shalom right. of the land to which I brought you and pray for it on its behalf But I think what it does is it helps us as Christians and as the church um, understand that this isn't a nice to have, this is something we're called to, this is a calling. And I think that 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 calling is also important in a moment where the church is arguably a pretty weak institution socially, uh, nationally, Mm -hmm, in so many different ways. We were divided, we're demoralized uh, for the most part, uh, with some exceptions, But what's interesting at a local level, churches are actually incredibly strong. They've been some of the most important institutions in many places where all the other institutions have failed or disappeared. Often the churches are the only ones that are left. Think of an inner city community or in a really rural community, like either one. Often the only functioning institution are churches, right? Or faith communities. And I think when you begin to realize, but you may have to switch your mindset. If you think about churches have enormous assets to deploy locally. If they have a building and they have land.
1: Building and land. They now
2: have physical assets, right? It's crazy, yeah. They have physical assets. They have potentially financial assets. And of course they have people. And I think one of the things I would say to pastors, maybe almost more than anything else, is to think of your congregation. As both a microcosm of your community and as a massive asset for answering this call from Jeremiah of seeking the shalom of the community or the land I brought you to.
1: So one of the things that you talked about in this opportunity that you see with churches and Christianity, you framed it in terms of Christianity's surprise. And I really like that because I think the element of surprise to me is a very compelling element as well, right? Um, there's a delight that comes with surprise. And so I'd be curious to hear you unpack that Christianity surprise a bit for our listeners. I'm going to speak personally
2: about it. But where I get the the phrase from, I'm stealing. Um, oh, no. Ha- happily what? stealing. Yes, right? <laughs> uh, so a colleague at, here at Duke Divinity School named Kevin Rowe just came out with this book, Christianity Surprise. And Cavan is an early church historian who writes about how was it that before Constantine declared Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, it grew from a few thousand people in the backwaters of the Roman Empire to a few million people right at the heart of the empire. What was it that made this thing grow so fast and become so culturally pervasive in a space of a few hundred years and he outlines a number of things that are important to the early church i'll just say a couple things and then draw a personal connection uh to it which is they had a certain vision of who god was that was radically different and that vision then started to give them a what he says a story for everything that, that empowered them with that vision of god the story of everything with a certain understanding of who they were as image bearers of that God. And then the kind of natural organic response was they started seeing things in their community that institutions that, that didn't honor that image, the fundamental dignity as image bearers. Um, they started seeing opportunities for both innovation, for response, for repair, for shalom. Mm. And there was an outpouring of that in a whole bunch of different ways and a flourishing of new institutions and innovative ways of dealing with the poor, the creation of hospitals and hospices, uh, the well-known story of when the Roman Empire had its pandemics, its plagues. The Christians were the ones running into the cities, not out of them. Right. To the point where you get certain Roman figures that are saying, these Christians are making the rest of us look pretty bad. (laughs) So it was surprising. No one expected it. It sort of broke into human reality in a way that nobody could have ever predicted. And of course, it's continued to surprise uh, down through the ages. And
0: that's led to the rapid growth. If I could double back on something you said earlier, just to kind of round it out, is you had mentioned these unlearnings that we have to do. And one of them was the false choice between evangelism and biblical justice. It sounds like this is getting us back to that unlearning, right? Because
2: Absolutely. And th- it's the whole gospel. Yeah. It's not just pieces of the gospel and that these things are part of the same cloth. And I think in our moment, a time when I think <laughs> the world thinks it knows the church pretty well, yeah. it thinks it's got the church's number. And I suspect for a growing portion of Christian believers themselves, I think we could stand to be surprised <laughs> yeah. about the relevance or the uh, maybe not re- cultural relevance, but the the poignancy of the church mm-hmm. and the move of the spirit is still alive in our time that we can still be surprising. And I think that would be a surprise to most of us. Yeah, But it's one worth believing in. And it's happened over and over again in Christian history. Um, and when it does happen, it always is a way of holding together things that were otherwise broken apart, I think it's had a holistic, full vision of Shalom at its heart, which is why I think Shalom and its sister concepts like Jubilee and Sabbath may in fact be the road to Christianity surprise in our time and in our
0: communities. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I I would love to keep this conversation going, (laughs) but I think we've got some really great stuff to chew on and stuff that we're going to continue to kind of chew on as we, as we carry out season four, because this, this great foundation, how we're we going to go after this vision and, and encourage pastors to go after this vision in the various uh, realms that we're going to be talking about this season. I think we've got a really good foundation to work from.
3: Hi again, this is Chris elassara from the Omen Center's Studio for Placemaking. The Omen Center is thrilled to be joining forces with Eric and Sarah Joy for the fourth season of the Embedded Church podcast. This is what hit me about episode one. Shalom, it isn't easy. Shalom isn't easy to understand theologically, conceptually, sociologically, politically. It's even more difficult to be animated by it. That is, to live out Shalom as a Christian, as a pastor, as a congregation and Christian community. What makes Shalom difficult is its comprehensive vision. Shalom is whole cloth, not threads, not bits of rag, but whole cloth. Its vision of wholeness, well-being, thriving is big. There's lots of different dots to connect up, especially when it comes to connecting the dots of Shalom to placemaking. I don't know about you, but for me, shalom can be a bit overwhelming. And in the face of such a nomad, I know I am tempted to settle for good enough. Just a dash of shalom there, a sprinkle of dustus there, and a dab of thriving for you over there. So my encouragement to myself and to you is do the hard thing and seek shalom. The verse for this season isn't slide into shalom for the city. It's seek the shalom of the city or seek the shalom of your neighborhood, town, or rural community. So dive deep into the books suggested in the podcast notes, especially Brueggemann. Ask the hard questions and do the biblical work to understand its deep meaning. Dive deep into what's going on in your neighborhood, town, city, or rural community. Celebrate the shalom that's there, but look hard for where shalom is absent or is not shared with others. Turn over the hard sociological cultural stones that are uncomfortable and ask, how can shalom come and heal those situations? Unlearn some things, really. sharpen others. In other words, keep connecting the dots and weaving whole cloth of God's shalom. So that's one of my thoughts on episode one. If you'd like to share your thoughts or what you're learning about Shalom, you can drop us an email or leave us a message on our feedback phone line. That's all for now. See you at the end of the next episode.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode show notes for links to resources and other helpful information related to this episode. If you'd like to connect with us to share comments or ideas about the work we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at info at or leave a voice message on our feedback line by dialing 760-527-3260. Follow us on Instagram at podcast or visit our website www.embeddedchurch.com. Finally, thank you to our Season 4 partners at Orman Center and to all of our faithful listeners and supporters who have helped us make it to Season 4. We are honored and encouraged. Until next time, be well.